are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, I have a conversation with doctors Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy, and together they published a book that is called Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, Children, Adolescents and Adults. And that was with the Cambridge University Press. I thought that was quite interesting. And um, ARFID, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, is one of the eat, um, one of the diagnoses of an eating disorder that doesn't get spoken about quite as much as, say, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, etc., etc. So I'm always looking for people to talk about this one. And seeing as they've just published a book about it, thought that would be a pretty good idea. The first thing that I ask doctors Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy is tell me a little bit about themselves and what it is that they do. Sure. Well, um, Tabitha, my name is Dr. Jenny Thomas. I'm a clinical psychologist in Boston and the co-director of the Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program at Mass General Hospital and an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And I'm really excited to be here to talk about avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. That was an awesome <laughs> intro. Um, and I'm going to do kind of exactly the same. <laughs> I'm just going to do a repeat. Um, but this is, uh, I'm, my name is Cameron Eddy, and I'm also a clinical psychologist. Um, I, with Jenny, I am the co-director of the uh, Eating Disorders Clinical and Research Program here at Mass General Hospital. Uh, and I'm also an associate professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry. I'm really excited to be here, Tabitha. Yeah. Um, so why don't we start by... I'd love to just hear about your work. Sure. Yeah. So we started to become interested in avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. So the, the acronym being um, ARFID or pronounced ARFID. Um, probably um, between five and 10 years ago when we started seeing patients um, at our clinic who didn't seem to meet criteria for the existing eating disorders, um, you know, the diagnoses like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa, which really depend a lot on having disturbance in body image or concerns about shape and weight to some extent. Um, we started to get curious about these patients who were restricting, cutting back on their eating in different ways that didn't really involve um, shape and weight concerns. And so then we followed with great interest um, the work group for the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th edition um, when they were looking at adding this new diagnosis um, to DSM-5 um, called ARFID, which actually did seem to really well describe some of the patients that we were seeing at our clinic. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about what ARFID is, Cameron? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so, it, it, and I would just add one other thing, which is that so both Jenny and I have done a lot of work with young kids um, with eating disorders. So, you know, between the ages of eight and let's say 14, so sort of early uh, adolescence with uh, anorexia. And what we were finding is that a lot of the kids who sort of looked like they had anorexia nervosa in the sense that they'd lost a significant amount of weight or had fallen off of their own growth curves um, were generally denying weight and shape concerns. Um, and while a subset of those certainly did have weight and shape concerns, that their behavior suggested that they probably did have it, um, when we got to know many of these kids, it, it really seemed like um, their presentation was quite different. 
Um, and then, you know, as we started to learn more about what was going on with them, it seemed like a, a good subset of these kids actually did have ARFID. Um, so really a different presentation than the kids with uh, Frank anorexia nervosa. Um, so ARFID itself uh, is a pretty heterogeneous group of, uh, of individuals. Um, folks can be any age. So kids, adolescents, and adults, uh, and they present with avoidant or restrictive eating patterns, um, which really can fall into at least three categories um, that are often overlapping. Um, so the first is folks who have what we think of as a sensory sensitivity to eating. So these are the ones who tend to be very picky about what they're eating. Um, often they're avoiding fruits and vegetables. Um, often they're avoiding different kinds of meats as well. Um, but they seem to be very sensitive in responding to different tastes or textures or smells of food. Um, and also the, the, the presentation, what it looks like. Um, the second kind of uh, folks with ARFID that we see a lot of are individuals who um, have had any kind of trauma related to eating. Um, so this may be folks who have had a choking or a vomiting episode and then subsequently begin restricting their intake or avoiding certain foods because they're worried about having the same kind of thing happen again. And then the third group is the ones um, who generally seem less interested in food. Um, so these are the folks who generally uh, sort of are not in tune with their appetite or describe not feeling hungry. Um, and they tend to be ones who are pretty restrictive, often not eating throughout the day or having very small appetite when they do eat. Um, in some ways, these are the ones who uh, I think we were initially confusing with kids with anorexia as well. Yeah. I think it's just the other thing to remember about the diagnostic criteria is that the avoidant or restrictive eating has to be causing real problems for the person for them to meet the diagnosis. So um, has to be leading to the person maybe becoming underweight or not growing taller, or maybe they haven't reached their height potential as an adult, um, or someone has to develop a nutrition deficiency like, you know, low iron or low B12 because they're not eating enough variety, um, or they might be dependent on nutritional supplements like Ensure or Boost or tube feeding, um, or um, and or um, they have to have a fair degree of psychosocial impairment. Um, and we've been really kind of struck by how um, sort of how extreme that can get with some of the um, folks that we've been working with. Um, you know, so we've worked with young people, for example, who've gone away to college and then had to come home because they weren't able to kind of identify like preferred foods that they felt comfortable eating in the dining hall. Um, or we've worked with adults whose partners have been concerned about getting married or committing to having children because they were so worried about their partners um, eating difficulties. Um, or, you know, folks that can't travel or go on vacation. Um, or, or if they do, they have to bring sort of a suitcase full of granola bars or something that feels safe for them to eat. Um, so it really is pretty distinct just from having a few food preferences here and there it has to really be causing problems for people. And again, sometimes those problems are, are really extreme, uh, which is partly what drew us into wanting to develop a treatment to try to help. Right. So because um, fussy eating is, is a relatively common thing in young children, isn't it? And so it's not that. 
Exactly. And actually, Cameron and I are both moms. Um, I have a two-year-old boy, and she has a five-year-old. And, um, you know, just the other night, um, I took my son for pizza. He was asking for pizza. And then when we got to the pizza place, he said, Mama, this pizza is stinky. So he decided he didn't want it. Um, but that kind of behavior, you know, if it's every once in a while, um, you know, could be totally normative. And usually between the ages of two and six, that tends to be a window where young kids will have a lot of selective eating. Um, but if it really persists beyond that window and into, you know, middle childhood and into adolescence and adulthood, and it's really causing these really deep um, and upsetting problems for the person, whether health-wise or just kind of socially, psychosocially, um, that's when we start to really um, have concern for our fed. Yeah. And I think in the same um, in the same vein, you know, in the same way that um, those young kids who have that developmental, developmentally normal kind of food preferences or restrictive eating in any way, um, as they get older, they're expanding their diet when they don't have ARFID, whereas the kids with ARFID are actually just continuing to mm -hmm. decrease the numbers of foods that they're eating. So often they're, you know, when we look back um, at the 10-year-old, we're looking back at where they were at age seven, um, and usually they were eating more foods at seven than they are now. Oh, so that's interesting. That really is a different sort of um, progression than most children with fussy eating go on to widen their diet. However, with a person with ARFID, may it gets narrower and narrower. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, to the point that we have had uh, folks come into the clinic seeking treatment where they used to eat a number of foods, and by the time they come to us, they're maybe only eating, you know, five or ten foods or recently, you know, Cameron, you were working with a young man who was only eating two foods, I think, right. just kind of the hot dogs and some Ensure drink. Right. Um, and obviously you could imagine how that'd be really difficult then to go out and socialize with friends, go to restaurants, you know, if you can Maybe really... hold a job. Yeah. 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 You can only eat two foods. Uh, what about if somebody doesn't necessarily present at a low weight or underweight? Because I can imagine that in some cases a person could learn how to really limit or have a very narrow base of foods that they eat, but not necessarily, or and be able to sustain their weight. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of times when people think of ARFID, they think of somebody who's underweight and certainly we came at it from the standpoint of having had research interests with anorexia nervosa and a fair amount of these um, kids and adults are underweight and are needing to gain weight, but you, we certainly see ARFID across the weight spectrum. So we'll have patients who have gone undiagnosed for a long period of time because their weight has been fine, you know, and they've been in the normal range, or um, individuals who have obesity. So, you know, their primary care doctors or pediatricians are maybe not super worried about their malnutrition, but they actually come in and even in the setting of, you know, um, being overweight are, are quite malnourished because the foods they're relying on are, are kind of low in some nutrients, even if they're high in calories. So um, you things like chicken nuggets or, or mac and cheese, for example. Right. So I think that that's, uh, it's, the, it's probably actually worse with say anorexia people not understanding that somebody can have an eating disorder at any size and um, I imagine that for ARFID as well a lot of people that are not in smaller bodies just get completely overlooked or possibly encouraged to eat a very narrow base of foods and so um well, what do you, you're obviously both quite interested in ARFID. So what is so interested, interesting about ARFID? That's a great question. Um, 
I think to me, because it's really on a continuum with normality, you know, I think a lot of us can relate to having foods that we don't like. Um, Cameron and I both dislike mayonnaise. We've talked about that. Um, you know, Love so we mayonnaise. Got- <laughs> okay, yeah. And, and I think it's also because even within relating to it, it also everyone's ARFID is different and can be sort of idiosyncratic. So one patient's preferred food, the food that they find the most safe, maybe someone else's arch nemesis food, sure. which, which is interesting. I mean, certainly as Cameron pointed out, there are patterns in the types of foods that tend to be preferred versus not. But I think, you know, there's a little bit of relatability to some of the symptoms, but then they get carried to such an extreme that we're really compelled just to try to help people to kind of get back into their lives. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been really rewarding and kind of exciting to work with this population as well is the idea that they really have been underserved. So they've gone undetected for so long um, that often they're just so grateful to be coming in for treatment. Um, And it's, you know, one of the ways that we think about it is, I think, different than any of the approaches that they've taken before. And so sometimes it's actually just really rewarding to give them tools that then they can apply um, and watching them change and grow is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So I would say even just, even just that, that it's a, it's a rewarding population to work with. Right. And talking of treatment, because you, you wrote a book together, didn't you? For, for, for specifically for treatment for Arthur, which um, I'm not sure that I've heard too many books actually that are really specifically for this category of eating disorder. And so what does that treatment look like? Sure. So the, the book is called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, Children, Adolescents, and Adults. We just published it a couple months ago, so um, in early 2019 with Cambridge University Press. Um, it is meant to be a book that's really for health professionals who want to be able to offer the treatment to their patients. Um, and then we're also working on a book right now that's more for um, individuals that have ARFID that might be, you know, a little less technical, maybe hopefully a little more interesting and exciting. Um, but in general, you know, the treatment um, is is very similar in some ways to existing evidence-based treatments for eating disorders. So we pull in um, elements of cognitive and behavioral types of interventions, elements of family-based treatment, you know, for young people with ARFID who we rely on their parents really to support them in getting back on track. Um, The treatment has four stages um, that are are meant to last over about 20 to 30 sessions. So we try to keep it to be a a time-limited treatment, um, but allow enough sessions for folks who might be really underweight or really malnourished nutritionally to replete themselves. But the four stages are first, we um, provide a lot of psychoeducation and try to help people learn what ARFID is, um, what type of ARFID do they have, try to help them start eating at regular intervals throughout the day so they're not like going long periods without eating, um, you know, which is kind of messing up their hunger cues and um, not giving them a lot of opportunities to bring on board new foods. And then in the second stage, we do a lot of treatment planning. So figuring out which modules from stage three that we're going to help walk them through. And then in stage three, 
we have um, modules that are designed for each of the presentations of our food. So there's one for folks who want to add on board new foods, um, sensory sensitivity module. There's a module um, for patients who um, have a lack of interest in eating, try to bring them back to what they were interested about, about some of their preferred foods or um, how to eat more at regular times to hopefully get their um, endocrine cues back on board and hunger cues. And then we also have a module for kind of that fear of reversive consequences to do exposures to feared food or eating situations, but in a, a graded kind way so that um, the person can reach their goals. And um, we may do just one one module the whole time, or sometimes we need to do all three because we'll, um, you know, have an individual who has elements of all three of those presentations, and then at the end we do a relapse prevention um, plan where we help folks figure out how they're going to keep expanding their diet as they go throughout life. Because um, you know, even as adults, um, you know, it's great to be trying new things or kind of expanding your horizons for food. So, how do you, um, how how does somebody who has uh, fear of widening their diet how what is it the motivating factor for them to even go into treatment or to try and widen their diet especially I imagine if this person is a child and it's not necessarily t- to them impacting their social life to not be able to eat a wide variety of foods yet well it is a really good question so in our treatment we generally work with folks who are 10 and older um, so the treatment that we offer is really for individuals who are 10 and older. So it does involve a little bit of buy-in on the part of patients. Um, and generally, you know, in our experience, even for kids who are 10, um, 10 and older, even when their motivation, um, you know, maybe a bit low or their insight is a bit low, there's usually some hook so that this is making it difficult for them to participate at parties or to go to friends' houses or to have sleepovers. Um, but in all honesty, with the younger patients, it is usually the parents who are the ones who are driving um, driving the ship in terms of them being here. Um, usually it's the parents who have come in because they're quite concerned. Um, the family's either not able to eat together, this is causing enormous discord in the family, um, or that the, you know, the medical providers who are also on board um, have been really worried about them. And I would feel with adults, you know, we, we do tend to see, um, we haven't necessarily studied this systematically and can share data on this, but just anecdotally, it does seem to be that the um, adult patients who are you know, more self-referred um, do have a, a bit more internal motivation and they'll share examples of how impairing the ARFID has been, you know, that they maybe can't go on business trips or they can't travel to other countries because they don't know what the eating situation will be like, or, um, even, I guess, more circumscribed, you know, it's difficult for them to go on dates if they're single um, yeah. because so many dates involve, you go know, meet me for dinner, dinner or go to coffee. And if you only eat a handful of things, you're yeah. like scanning your brain for where you could get French fries. And then how would that look to the other person? And so it's a lot of emotional burden, I think, on these folks. And I would say just along those lines as well, is that some of the, you know, some of the most extreme examples that we think about with our adults are the ones where it's really causing impairment in their relationships, so that it has been such that they are not able to get involved in relationships, or that they're not able, um, that, you know, their partner's not uh, willing to commit to a life together, their part- partner's not ready to take the next step of getting married until they're able to work on their eating, or certainly, um, 
you know, in other cases, uh, folks where they're not ready to think about having children together until uh, they're able to get their eating on, uh, you know, on better track um, because they want to be able to be a model for their kids uh, in, in healthy ways as well. So it's pretty emotional. I, I imagine though, sometimes though, there are cases where say somebody for the majority of their life might maybe an adult and they've been eating pretty rigidly um, but rigid as that may be, they're actually, the foods that they're eating are actually providing them with enough calories not to necessarily um, be underweight and to be able to do what they need to do. The, you can't argue necessarily that there's a nutritional reason why they have to expand their foods. And if there's not much of a social reason either, then they must be thinking, well, why... Why can't I just be left as is? Right. And, you know, in the example that you're giving, it's an interesting thought experiment because possibly that person may not even have ARFID. So if their eating is, you know, fairly kind of narrow, um, but at the same time it's not causing problems socially, um, they haven't become underweight or had stunted in their growth, they're not having to rely on nutritional supplements, um, then they might be okay. Maybe they don't have a psychiatric disorder. I often think... Um, because many of these diagnoses are relatively new, and I, I often think back to, say, when I was a child, um, there was a, a, a guy that lived, a friend of my parents that lived in the village, and he only he was in his sixties and he only ate omelets. That's all he would ever eat, and he even his wife would have dinner parties and he wouldn't eat, and he, she would just cook him his separate omelet, and. It was just accepted that he only ever ate omelets. So now I'm just wondering, was that, you know, everybody just thought, well, he's just eccentric, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example. And we have worked with our colleagues, Rachel Bryant-Wan, Lucy Cook, and Nadia McCauley to develop a structured interview for ARFID called the PICA ARFID and Rumination Disorder Interview, or the party for short. And I'd be fascinated to to do the party with him and get a sense, you know, what, what he's thinking about his eating and if it's bothering him, you know, because if it's not, he may be okay. Um, eggs do have a lot of nutrition in them. But on the other hand, if he's not putting anything in the omelets, you know, he could be deficient and say vitamin K, for example, if he's not eating any grain vegetables, um, you know, or maybe if he's only getting his nutrition from multivitamins or something like that, that could be a problem. And then the other piece I think is thinking too, just about the degree of accommodation. So mm. for him, you know, it sounds like his wife was willing to make this meal and it was fine. And, you know, he certainly participated in parties and everything else. So it really may not have been, um, may not have reached the threshold for a diagnosis. Um, but in many of the cases where we see, you know, actually things have gone okay throughout the individual's childhood. And then as Jenny pointed out, when they moved to college and all of a sudden, you know, they're no longer at home where their family was really accommodating their very, very, very narrow food preferences, they're faced with the dining hall. And at this point, it's really when the RFID becomes quite problematic. It sort of turns its head, you know, and it's like in this situation, actually I'm no longer able to, um, to get enough food in order to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's another way that we think about it. Totally. If um, if people want to find out more about ARFID, if, if people are listening and thinking, well, maybe a family member has this, or um, maybe they're actually considering that they have it themselves, then where can people go to find more information? 
great question. Um, you know, certainly people could feel free to check out our book, although it is, you know, meant for health professionals. The other thing regarding our book is on the Cambridge University Press website. Um, we have a free download of all of the handouts from the book that actually are meant for patients and their families. And um, there's a lot of pretty, I mean, pretty good information. We were pretty hard on it. Um, talking about, you know, what ARF it is, what are the different presentations, what are some techniques that you could try. So um, it's sort of a long link, but we'd be happy to, to give that to you so you could make it available. Huge thank you for Drs. Jennifer Thomas and Cameron Eddy for coming on the podcast with me today. If you would like to find out anything um, more about what we talked about in the podcast, I'm going to put the links to all of the things that we mentioned. So that cognitive behavioral therapy for avoidant restrictive food intake disorder patient family workbook, which is free. I'll put a link to that in there. And then also to their book, which is not free, but if you're a um, clinician, um, it's probably a really good thing to have in your tool belt. Um, as I said, people don't talk about ARFID a lot. And um, so it's really nice to have some people specializing in it and really digging into how to make life easier for people with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder and how to help them recover. If you have any experience with ARFID and you would like to share, then drop me an email, info at tabithafra.com. I always welcome having people on the podcast that have lived experience with the stuff that we talk about. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.